Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Risky Behavior, where no subject is off limits. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy a beverage with us as we explore controversial issues and answer your health and wellness-related concerns, ranging from nutrition and exercise to sex and prescription drugs. I'm here with co-host Dr. Shetha Chakraborty, who's a national media risk expert, as seen on CNN, the BBC, Fox News, and more. But don't just think this hour is all science as usual. After four seasons as a regular guest and food scientist on The Dr. Oz Show, Dr. Taylor Wallace, who the Huffington Post calls the nation's premier food and nutrition guru, will help me loosen lips and spill tea with special guests that you won't want to miss. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this special episode that we are recording with acute acknowledgement that this is a sensitive topic and a pivotal point in American history. The purpose of this episode is to learn and share information on the uprisings here in America and around the world against police brutality and for racial justice. It's clear from the fact that we are still having this conversation over a hundred years since the end of slavery that we still have a lot of work to do in unlearning racial biases. We couldn't think of a better guest to explore this with us than Mike Star Hopkins. You'll notice the audio quality isn't up to our usual standard because of a few technical difficulties we experienced with recording this episode, but please don't let that deter you from listening through till the end. There's a lot of good information, and as always, please relax with a drink ahead of some future heavy lifting that will be required of all of us, because remember, we're in this together. We're really thrilled to have with us Michael Starr Hopkins, despite him having a very cool name, there's a lot more to his bio than just that. He is the founder of Northern Star Consulting, no, Northern Star Strategies. He has also been on Barack Obama's campaign, Hillary Clinton's campaign, and most recently, John Delaney's campaign. So this is somebody who knows the ins and outs of not just what's going on in politics in D.C., but how that really, its implications to current events and especially what's happening right now with police brutality, with racial justice. And, you know, side note, if you have the connection and you want to tell Barack Obama that, you know, he could come back anytime, we would all really (laughs) love that. come back, Barack. We miss you. We miss you, Barack. We really miss Barack Obama. And Michelle, my hero. So close (laughs) geographically and yet so far. All right, so let's get into it. Yeah, let's get let's get into this. Today we're going to be talking about protests and police brutality, and you have a really phenomenal background in this area. All of the uprisings that we're seeing, how has this really evolved since the Ferguson uprising and Michael Brown? Well, I think now what you're seeing is not just young African American people, um, with a mixing of you know our white Americans. I think now you're seeing a broad mix of young, black, old, white, Asian, Latino. Uh, I think one of the things that's made this such a big tipping point is it's it's so inclusive. It's so representative of what America looks like. And I think you're seeing people from all different backgrounds and even all different ideologies. I mean, this isn't just Democrats uh, out protesting anymore. This is Republicans, independents, Democrats who are kind of shedding political labels and saying enough is enough. And I think that's kind of the big shift we're seeing from what we saw, you know, five years ago, two or three years ago. That's that's the change. It's not that this is new. Nothing we're seeing, unfortunately, is new. This has been going on since slavery and beyond. And 
people, it's not that we've forgotten Michael Brown. It's not that we've forgotten Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. It's not that any of those are any less relevant. It's the fact that the response is that much more cohesive and global. That's what's really cool. unique about, and why was it though? Yeah, I was there two Saturdays ago when the protest first started turning violent and police first started attacking protesters. And I remember walking home and thinking, this is my home, this is my city, I'm from here and it's on fire. And I just had this moment when I got home where I just had to kind of sit down and turn everything off and just be really quiet and just allow time to think and process it all. And I was distraught because a couple of days later we were gonna see the president then, you know, assault and tear gas Again. That's what's really twisted, too, is because you have people who are saying that police brutality has gone too far and that's being met with more police brutality. So it's this really vicious cycle is what we're seeing. So how do we break the mold? What is it that we're asking for from your point of view? What are we demanding? You know, I think it's, it's a couple things. I think one, uh, the African-American community wants to be heard. And I think that that's such an important thing because when a group of people feels like something is uh, happening to them, that there is oppression um, being held against them, we want people to hear us when we try to draw attention to that. So I think that's the first thing. But in terms of like tangible policies, I mean, we've got to get rid of things like qualified immu uh, immunity. We've got to get rid of programs like 1033, which put military grade equipment in the hands of local police. You know, we got to restore the Voting Rights Act and make sure that every American has the right to vote. You know, I think those are the kind of things that we can really do today, like right now at this very moment that would absolutely change the way that our countries run. You know, we've already seen states start to put in bans on chokeholds to make it so that now there's more accountability and more transparency in terms of police records. Um, but there's federal steps that we need to take to really make sure that people's rights are being respected. One thing that I didn't realize until about a year ago was, you know, I live right here in Washington, D.C. as well, and the police are only required to do I guess what you call target shooting once a year. So you have people that don't have a lot of experience with guns carrying some pretty big artillery with them. And, you know, if you're, let's say, target shooting once a year, I mean, are you really prepared if something does happen and you have to use that gun? Would you even hit the right target? There's so few policies around police that you know, are so heavily armed. Yeah, and that's one of the scary things. When we think about all of the responsibilities that law enforcement now has, they're not just, you know, protecting our streets from violence, but they're now forced to be social workers. They're now forced to be therapists. They're supposed to be the people that are responding to homeless people. They're the first responders during uh, the EMT when there's crises uh, on the ground. I mean, I think we need more thorough background checks into police and into their mental health before we give them a gun and put them on the street. But I think we also need to be more thoughtful in how we fund departments that can aid the police and not make them the sole burden of all these uh, crises. So you've been talking about this. I think we've we've all been kind of referring to it, but let's just break it down for our viewers. What is the difference then between defunding 
versus abolishing the police. Let's like let's just make that really clear because we've been hearing a lot of this terminology. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that has absolutely drawn a huge confusion. So when people talk about defunding the police, what they really mean is reallocating the funds and taking, for example, in New York, where you have a city that has, you know, over a billion dollars given to law enforcement, you know, that money is, you know, counterterrorism money. That's money that could go towards education. That's money that could go towards the mental health department. That's money that could go towards all sorts of things, which would then alleviate the burden of law enforcement. And then we could better fund so that we have, you know, better education so that people have more opportunity, so that we're treating mental health, so that we're not having people having breakdowns and having addiction and having all these things that lead to crime. You know, we talk about preventative health care a lot in this country. Well, our budgets are moral documents. And when we budget, we need to talk about preventing crime, not responding to it. Our budgets are moral documents. Hey, Amen. you That's know, you're talking point. to a nutrition scientist right here. So, I mean, you know, I'm the prevention side is so key. And we often, we like to treat things. We don't like to prevent them. And so, so you're talking about defunding. We're talking about abolishing. So Camden, New Jersey did something really radical that hasn't been replicated around the United States, but I remember hearing about it. And in fact, I've been hearing about it a lot with what's going on currently in America and around the world. And they were able to completely just redesign the police force there. And we're seeing that in Minneapolis now too. And it's this whole concept of what is the, what is the role of police in society? And what is that social contract that public, public officials like the police are going to have with the communities that they serve? How do you envision that going forward? What would be beyond just kind of the there's those policy policy measures that we're explaining and um, we're hoping to achieve. But what will it look like ultimately? What is that utopia? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is rebuild trust between police and the neighborhoods and community they're policing. Because I think one of the biggest issues we have now is communities are scared of the people who they're supposed to be uh, who are supposed to be protecting them. And police, the people that are supposed to be protecting communities, are scared of those communities when they go into them. So, you know, we need to rebuild those relationships. And I think the most important way and the easiest way we can do that is get back to having police live in the communities that they serve. You know, when I talk to my grandparents, I always think it's interesting. They talk about how the police in their neighborhood, they knew. And so when they were doing something they weren't supposed to do, the police didn't take them down to the police station. They walked him up to their door to their parents and said, look what I caught Herman doing. Look what I caught Alex doing. And they let parents deal with that. Now, you know, obviously that's going to be harder in big cities. But when you are living in the neighborhood where you work, when you're part of that community, it builds trust and it builds goodwill. And I think we need more of that. And so to your question, I think when we talk about utopias and what we want it to look like, we want a society where aren't chasing crime all day, that they're able to, you know, be part of the neighborhood and not looked at as a negative uh, force and disturbing. And so I think that's where we really, it, policy is important, but at the end of the day, we're all people. This is about humans. And so we need to be able to have human interactions. Because nobody should die off a potential counterfeit $20 bill. <laughs> yeah, and the idea is the police are working for some demographics in American society, but they're not. it's not working for all the demographics. And that's ultimately what we're trying to solve here. 
I was a victim of a home invasion in college. And uh, while gunmen were in my house, I was lucky enough to make it out um, while a couple of my roommates were still in the house. And I remember banging on my neighbor's doors, begging them to call the police. Uh, when the police arrived, the first thing they do, did was draw their weapons on me as I was in the front lawn. Wow. And I kept trying to say to the police, they're inside. We're, my roommates are inside. There's a, a home invasion going on. And the first thing they did was draw their guns on me. And I think that's the problem. So let's move from police brutality to racial justice in general. I'd love to hear what this means in terms of overhauling society. It's not just police brutality, right? You know, I think at the root of it, I think we have to look at our education system. Uh, a lot of our education systems are funded from local taxes. And when you fund education solely through local taxes, it allows upper class communities to have really nice schools and a mile or two away across the train tracks, uh, poor neighborhoods to have poorly funded right. education systems. Um, and as we know, uh, those economic factors break down in a racial factor as well. So you end up, end up having underfunded middle schools, elementary schools, high schools in black neighborhoods and really well-funded uh, schools in white neighborhoods. And so we've got to get back to, or not even get back to, because we've never really had a history um, ensuring that we actually have equal education, regardless of income, regardless of race, um, regardless of where you live. Every American should have a good education that starts them off on the path to have opportunity. You know, before we uh, started the show, um, I did a little bit of background reading because this is a science show and we like to throw out a couple, you know, science topics. Um, I did read about a study from Eugene, Oregon has really, you know, transitioned their police department. Um, they now have what's called a crisis assistance helping out streets or a cahoots system. And, you know, this system spends less than 1% of the police department's budget. Uh, but it was responsible for $6 million in medical services uh, cost savings alone. So there is some actual strong data behind what you're saying, you know, across America. Now, you know, granted, it's probably, you know, more difficult to implement in the bigger cities than in, you know, small communities, but it's working. Look, we've, we've seen proof. People don't grow up saying, I want to be a criminal, or I want to go to jail, or I want to be a member of society who doesn't have the right to vote or can't get federal loans. People commit crime because they don't have opportunity, because they don't have other options. And so what we've got to do if we really want to improve our society is make sure that everyone has options, that everyone has the opportunity to decide if they want to go to college, if they want to go to a trade school, if they want to be an entrepreneur, if they want to be a teacher. People want to be able to be happy, and be in control of their own destiny. But when you start people off uh, in a system that is broken, where there's little to no access to healthcare, little to no access to mental health, especially, you know, when we look at our uh, urban communities, so many people are suffering from PTSD and are going untreated. You know, when you live in a community where you're hearing gunshots every day, when you're walking through um, your streets wondering if you're gonna be shot that day, that has the same effect on you that it does go to Fallujah or go to Baghdad and fight in a war. So we need better mental health training as well for the people that are coming from these communities where there's so much stress and so much conflict. I like when we talk about 
how to get there, right? So we were kind of going back and forth between policies and ideas. So now to switch back to policies, what does this look like? So we've repealed 50A in New York City. That's a big deal. We're talking about getting rid of immunity for police officers. There's got to be additional things for society, you know, writ large that we can really take some step towards. And that's that's ultimately what this rallying cry has been, not just for Black Lives Matter, but there's several organizations that have a lot of overlapping um, campaigns across their platforms. So what are some of these policies that really, and, and from your experience as a public defender, what is it that you see as practical in the short term, in the long term? Let's talk through some of that. Well, I think the most important thing we can do right now, and I mentioned this before briefly, was reauthorize the Voting Rights Act. Because what the Voting Rights Act did was give every American not just the, the right to vote, but it protected their right to vote. And I like to say if you don't have the right to vote or you can't vote, then you don't have your full citizenship. Because being right. able to participate in our democracy is the basis for the formation of this country. And so I think that, you know, making sure that we empower the DOJ to once again um, put forth preclearance requirements so that southern states, which have historic inequities, have historically tried to stop African Americans from voting, that there are mechanisms in place to ensure that they're not doing that again. That was one of the things that when the Supreme Court issued their ruling in 2000, I believe, 14, 15, um, the Shelby case, they struck down preclearance, which at the root of it is one of the things that we're dealing with and why we saw the, you know, shit show that we did in Georgia. Right. And I mean, you know, where I'm from, Kentucky, you see the exact same thing happening. Yeah. I mean, when you vote, it's this isn't just about voting for president. One of the most powerful things you can do is vote for your city prosecutor, vote for your district your attorney, vote elections. for the judges, vote for your council members. I mean, at the end of the day, the people who have the most impact on your day-to-day -day life, it's not Donald Trump. I mean, he says a lot of stuff and, you know, you see him on TV right. a lot, but the people who really affect your day-to-day -day life are your mayor, your city council, your prosecutors. And so we've got to get back to reminding people how important it is. Civic engagement is the most important thing we can do, because as we're seeing from the protesters, you can change the world. Yeah, ever since George Floyd's death, this just feels different this time. It feels like we're actually going to do something about this. Like, the idea I, that I, Camden was able to completely dismantle its police department because it had the higher, highest murder rate capital in the United States. And that was what the trigger was, right? Now, Minneapolis, the trigger is what happened with George Floyd. We need to see this replicated and scaled across the U.S. That's that's what I'm really looking forward to seeing happening now. We saw the mayor be shamed, right? The mayor of Minneapolis. And then you saw the nine-person council stand up and say, no, we are definitely going to defund the police. Like, that's incredible. And I will say as much of a tragedy as COVID has been, and it has been an absolute tragedy, and it is still ongoing, and we still need to focus on it. It's been a real opportunity in the sense of people are home. People are not distracted by the 50 million things going on in their lives. Uh, and we right. can really focus on the things that matter. And whereas normally, I think, you know, the killing of George Floyd and Ahmed Aubrey would have been lost in the news cycle. There is no news cycle right now other than this. People have no choice but to focus on it. They can't turn away from it. They can't turn a blind eye to it and they can't ignore it. And so I think, you know, out of darkness and despair comes an opportunity to, you know, birth something that's beautiful and hopefully will 
be strong and be good for the country. How much of this, since you brought up COVID, how much of this is also just a little bit of economic angst as well? To what extent is it that we're seeing those that are have been most disproportionately hurt by COVID, which also happens to be black and brown communities, and those are the ones, and I don't know the numbers, to be completely frank, of what proportion of protesters are black versus white versus brown, but how much of this is also being propelled forward because there is that fear of what is my future going to look like? I think a lot of it. I mean, if you look at who are the most vulnerable in our country, it in a large part is African-American people. And when you look at the people who have had to put their life at risk, you know, I think we forget when we talk about the, the work stoppage because of COVID, a lot of Americans didn't stop working. The people who fill our grocery stores, the people who deliver our food, the people on the front lines of hospitals, the nurses, the doctors, I mean, the people who have put themselves in most danger have overwhelmingly come from minority communities. And so I think that there is a frustration among, especially the African-American community, that we are you know, three times more likely to die of COVID three times more likely to be infected by COVID, um, but make up a much smaller portion of the country. We're the ones who are overwhelmingly losing jobs. You know, this old adage goes, when America gets the flu, African-American community gets pneumonia. Because no matter how hard things hit Main Street, it always hits Black Street 10 times worse. And it's, it's due to, you know, lack of healthcare access in my field, it's food insecurity. I mean, it's all of these issues bundled together. You know, we talk about things like gun control and food insecurity, you know, all these different issues that, you know, as Democrats, we want to push forward. But we kind of sometimes make the bad mistake in, you know, being in silos when it's really a, a 10 foot thousand problem that we need to tackle all at once. When we don't have a lot of African-American doctors, when we don't have a, lar- a lot of African-American politicians and CEOs and kind of leaders, we end up not having our voice heard and we end up not being properly treated. You know, one of the big problems we're seeing now in the African-American community is misdiagnosis because African-American there's a lack of African-American doctors. And so they're not noticing the things like high rates of prostate cancer, you know, high rates of other diseases that infect African-Americans because, you know, as a white American doctor, those aren't the things you're necessarily treating on a day-by-day basis. Well, and particularly to COVID-19 as a researcher, um, you know, we're showing a lot of data that show pretty clearly across the world that vitamin D is is very, very linked to whether you contract COVID-19 or not. I mean, there's some studies out of Thailand that are showing if you have a, a high vitamin D blood level that you're some, something around 20 times less likely to contract COVID-19. All of that data is based on research in Caucasian populations. There's not one study in black populations or other minority populations. So when you talk about health disparities, it's not just access to health care. It's the basic research that we have. And some populations are being completely excluded. And the black community is is one of those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we've got to make sure that we're doing better to fund uh, schools like the Tuskegee Institute, you know, 
historically black college and universities that are not only undergraduate schools, but also train the next generation of black doctors, black dentists, black scientists. I mean, there is a real need to fix this curve where we're failing minority communities at their earliest level, you know, pre-K, kindergarten. And we know, the statistics show that if you're not a strong student early in your career, it is so much harder to catch up and you're more likely to not go to college and not end up getting the types of jobs that pay well and offer you security and, you know, that entrance into a new economic uh, step of the ladder. Which is why programs like the National School Lunch Programs and Breakfast Programs, Head Start, and Early Intervention Programs in Schools work. Which is why funding needs to go in that direction. So why are we funding disproportionately the police? You have, you, you have, um, a role as a public defender. Give us a little background as to why funding went in that direction so heavily. Well, a lot of this happened in regard to 1033. After 9-11, we saw a real fear all over the country, especially in middle America, um, that, you know, Al-Qaeda was going to come to Boise, Idaho and blow up your town. Or, you know, Al-Qaeda was going to come to, you know, middle of Missouri somewhere and put anthrax in your water. And so... What they did was give all this grant money to local police forces so that they could buy military-grade equipment. And then after the Iraq War, when we had purchased just an insane amount of military-grade equipment as a show of force, we needed to do something with it. And so they created a program where local municipalities could purchase this equipment at a super discounted rate or in some instances actually be given it for free. And, you know, if you're in Richmond, Virginia, or Charlottesville, Virginia, and they're offering you a, a tank that is something you'd yeah. see in Fallujah, why not? Right. I mean, forget the face masks and healthcare equipment. Let's make sure we have the tank in middle of nowhere, Virginia. Like, <laughs> it's infuriating. It's, the problem is when you dress people up like G.I. Joes, they start to act like it. Yeah. And when you make our city streets. Untrained G.I. Joes. Exactly. And so you end up with people going around acting like they're superhero crime fighters instead of the deputies that should be protecting us from day-to-day crime. Let me kind of jump around for just a second because, you know, this is something that's been on my mind for quite some time and I want to get your reaction to this. In my experience, and this is just with, you know, the people I know, there is a certain personality that signs up to be a cop. Like, I mean, and I think that's another issue that nobody's talking about. And I just want to get your reaction on. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we do have to be careful with overgeneralizing and saying, you know, these notions that all cops are back are bad. Right. I don't think all cops are bad. But I do think that there has become a mentality of silence against speaking out about bad cops. And I think that when you have bad cops within your force, you have an obligation not only to just speak out and call them out, uh, but you know, just like I don't want people saying all black people are bad because of one or two bad actors, they should want the same thing. And so, you know, I think this idea that these guys who think this hyper masculinity, this toxic masculinity is the way to go, people who are overcompensating for something that happened to them in high school, those aren't the people that we need on our streets. We need people who have emotional intelligence, people who can figure out 
what is required in that moment to de-escalate the situation. Because if an officer has to fire his weapon or her, her weapon, that's a bad thing. That should be looked at right. negatively because the goal of law enforcement should be to de-escalate situations. Firing right. a weapon should be the absolute last scenario. And if they do so, there should be a full investigation to understand why and what could have been done to prevent that. That's what we're missing, right? And this whole concept of even having weapons that are being carried by police officers, that's unique to the United, not unique to the United States, but look at countries that we admire, the UK, Scandinavia, they don't have officers carrying weapons. But the reason we have that in the United States is, I mean, this is inextricably connected to the gun control debate. Right. As in, we have Americans, civilians who have guns. So can we really expect our uh, police officers to not carry? How do we think about that? I mean, that that's a very tricky subject to broach because it's a much bigger question. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I was talking with a family member the other day and I was making that exact point that there's no need for every member of our law enforcement to carry a weapon. There absolutely should be members of law enforcement who are designated to carry weapons and we can have conversations about what percentage of the force that is, but everyone doesn't need to. And I used uh, the UK as an example of countries where they have low crime rates and not everyone's caring. When you have a gun, I think it inextricably raises the tension in situations because you know that's an option. You know you can, at the end of the day, use that weapon. And it also makes the person uh, engaging with law enforcement more fearful because they know this can end deadly. And so I think what we do need to do is talk about what role law enforcement and use of force, justified or unjustified, we want in this country. Because I think that there's a lot of situations where we have tasers, we have you know, non-lethal force that can subdue individuals so that we can then investigate what happened, then go forth with a trial. Right. But this idea that situations need to end, exactly. Yeah, we, we certainly know how to, we know law enforcement knows how to use pepper spray. We've seen them do it, so. I've been pepper sprayed in the face by the Baltimore police. You heard it here. Oh, wow. <laughs> how do we begin to move forward? You know, people are mad. They're angry, emotional. And this is the first time, you know, that I've seen at least, or, you know, that I can recall, where the uprising has lasted more than one, two, three days. I mean, it, it really seems like people are serious. Where do we go from here? Like, how do we make policy happen? I realize with this administration, we're probably not going to make much headway. But come January 21st, 2021, what happens? We can put as much policy in place as we want. But I think the most important thing that we need to do is something that we've never been willing to do. Um, and that's reconciliation. You know, when we talk about law enforcement and the fear within African-American communities of law enforcement, that's because law enforcement was used as a tool of terror for hundreds of years in the African-American community. The law enforcement that was supposed to protect black people was the same law enforcement that was lynching black people, that was raping African-American women, that was investigating Martin Luther King and sending him letters saying, kill yourself. So I'm sorry if we don't trust law enforcement innately, yeah. um, like some other communities. And I think that that conversation is one that's been sorely lacking, because I think many white Americans now 
feel like these things are of the past and that we've made it past then. Loving Day, which, you know, I think 67 years ago, something like that, 59 years ago, some some very short period of time is when that decision banned the criminalization of interracial marriage. You know, we are only, I think, six months removed from the last the last individual who's re- receiving benefits from the, the VA during the Civil War, I think we're six months removed from their death. I mean, it was a long time ago in America's history. But when you think of how old other countries are, thousands and thousands of years versus us, it ain't that long ago. You know, white Americans in general are just now opening their eyes to this because when you're white in America and something bad happens, you call the police. And that's not the way it is in the black community. I mean, it's very different in growing up white versus growing up black in your level of being comfortable with the police. And that's what we were saying in the beginning. We've come full circle. I will say it's what made what Amy Cooper did in Central Park in New York so insidious. I will say that moment actually affected me in a way that hit me even harder than the George Floyd or Ahmed Aubrey killing did, which sounds weird because there was two awful loss of life. But there was a moment in that video where she calls the police and she starts crying or pretending to cry and amplifying kind of her fear because she knew that the reaction it would get from police. And I think that that awareness to what you're what she was doing would should terrify everyone because that's what we have been saying for so long. That has been our fear for so long, that all it takes is an accusation. Same situation as Emmett Till. So what's changed since Emmett Till? Absolutely, and that woman is still alive. And she never, she was never charged and she is still alive. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's sickening. I mean, it just says a lot about how little, how little we've come, but how far we have yet to go and how this really is that pivotal moment where we're going to see some of this change. So, well, well, there's also this moment where you think, okay, what am I going to tell my grandkids? You know, we always say, are you on the right side of history or not? But you know, what am I going to tell my grandkids? What is that lady going to tell her grandkids that she, when she's on camera, I mean, it's just beyond me. Yeah. Thank God for social media to some extent, but more importantly, thank God for cell phone cameras. Because think of all the countless tragedies um, that haven't been video recorded. Think of all the African-American men and women who have been murdered at the hands of law enforcement or the hand of their neighbors who we know nothing about, who we don't know their names, all because there was no video. It is important that we have videos, but it's more important that we're believed and that we make sure everyone is held accountable and given proper treatment. Mike, we could talk to you for God knows how long, but we know you have you have to have an early night. Thank you for being a voice to the public that's really needed at the moment. Hey, thank you guys for having me and to and your listeners. Let's keep it going. Keep the fight alive. Hey y'all, that's a wrap for this season. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Risky Behavior. We really had a blast this season and we thank all of our listeners and wonderful guests for sitting in and winding down with us. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and any other place where podcasts are found. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram 
to keep up with Season 2. You can keep up to date at Risky Behavior DC across all our social media platforms. Or if you just want to see what antics Shetha and I get into between now and then, follow me at Dr. Taylor Wallace and Shetha at Shetha Chalk. We've really had a ball, y'all. Stay tuned for Season 2 coming fall of 2020. Till then, be safe, be kind, and stay summertime fine. Cheers!